Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a new weekly podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and I'll be here every Saturday morning to take you through the last week's developments in British politics, who is up and down in Westminster, and what, if anything, it all means. This week, we'll be discussing the Tories, Europe and the referendum, and Jeremy Corbyn's first reshuffle as Labour leader, and how his party is dealing with the media. I'm delighted to be joined by a stellar lineup for our first episode. The FT's political editor, George Parker, political columnist Janan Ganesh, chief political correspondent Jim Pickard, and former Labour adviser turned pundit John McTernan. Thank you all for joining. So we'll kick off by looking at a topic that I'm sure we'll be returning to throughout this year, the EU referendum. This week has been notable for David Cameron's decision to allow ministers a free vote whenever the vote is. It was a sensible decision, but one the Prime Minister ultimately had no choice in. A group of Eurosceptic ministers in the Cabinet forced his hand. The question now for both the party's leadership, MPs and membership, is can an almighty split be avoided? So, George Parker, begin with you. Um, how significant was the Prime Minister's decision to allow a free vote, and how has the mood been in the Tory parliamentary party this week? Well, I think you're right in saying it, in the end it was inevitable that, that David Cameron had to give his cabinet the chance to campaign on both sides of the argument. I think he wanted to leave it as late as possible because he knows very well that the uh, Eurosceptics have a shopping list of things they want and once they tick off one, they move on to the next one and he wanted to leave it as late as possible. On the other hand, he didn't want to leave it so late that it looked like he was being bounced into it and there was a bit of that floating around this week. There was a threat that some cabinet ministers could even resign, including Chris Grayling, the leader of the House of Commons. And I think he was determined that he should get in and it should be done on his terms. In terms of the mood of the parliamentary party, you could see that in the House of Commons at Prime Minister's Question Time on Wednesday. They thought it was the right decision. I think there's a sense in the party that it's got to be seen to be a clean fight, this referendum, and people have got to be allowed to state their views on both sides of the argument. I think there was a sense of relief that this has finally come to that. He certainly was forced into doing this earlier, though, because I think the idea was they were going to wait until the renegotiation was complete, which we're expecting around February the 18th, before they would announce that Minsk could have a free vote. Why did that happen? Well, I think he was very keen to announce it on his own terms. And there was a rumour swirling around Westminster as MPs returned from the Christmas break that there may be one or potentially more resignations by Eurosceptic cabinet ministers who wanted to speak out. And I think they were sort of being provoked a bit, actually, because in the run-up to Christmas, you had a number of people close to the Prime Minister, notably Sir John Major, the former Prime Minister, and William Hague, the former Foreign Secretary, who were going out there and making the case for Britain staying in the European Union, almost regardless of what deal uh, David Cameron negotiates in Brussels in February. And I think they, the Eurosceptics felt, well, hang on a sec, the balance of the argument was being tilted too much in the other direction. Well, in your um, column this week, Janan Ganesh, um, you argue that there's going to be debate and bad feeling over this referendum, but not an almighty split. Why do you think that is? Well, that column actually contradicts my columns of uh, 18 months to two years ago when I 
predicted pretty confidently that the referendum and the immediate aftermath would produce the biggest Tory split since uh, the subject of corn laws and free trade in the middle of the 19th century. And what I think has changed is Jeremy Corbyn. Because of the presence of an unelectable Labour leader, all the Tories really need to do is maintain some basic cohesion and not veer off into any extremes, and they can be confident of winning the next election and really governing without too much trouble until at least 2025. And the point of difference between now and the 1990s, when the Tories really did fall apart uh, over Europe, is that back then, in, say, 1995, they knew that they were going to lose in 1997. And so if you're an average Tory Eurosceptic minister or backbencher, even cabinet member, you had no reason not to assert yourself and cause trouble because the absolute worst thing that that could happen was going to happen anyway. Your party was going to get smashed in the election of 1997. So there's now a rational incentive for them to behave themselves. There is a, a supplementary reason why I think they won't fall apart this year or over this issue at all, and that is the, the fact of the referendum itself. And it took me a while to absorb the impact it has. The reason the Tories used to fall apart over Europe in the past was that there was no third party to adjudicate. You know, Eurosceptics would fight with pro-Europeans and there was no full stop on the discussion. Once you have a referendum and the public decide one way or the other, and I suspect they'll decide reluctantly to stay in, it doesn't even make sense to have much of a internal rebellion anymore. I mean, who would they be re- rebelling against and what would be their, their grievance? I think that the referendum itself takes a lot of the poison away from the subject. You have got the issue, though, Janan, that there are some people in the Conservative Party who have waited all their lives for this referendum. You know, people like John Redwood, for example. This is this is what they've really, really wanted for years. You've got probably two-thirds of the Conservative membership, half of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, six cabinet ministers. That's a lot of Euroscepticism just to push aside. So there is going to be bad feeling there. You've got to admit that. Enormously bad feeling. I suspect the parliamentary number will be slightly closer to a third than than a half. But you're right. A lot of the cabinet, a lot of the MPs, a majority of the members, uh, a large chunk of Conservative voters in the country. So inevitably, there'll be instability and discord. And David Cameron will look, I think, out of control of events for large parts of 2016. I just don't think it'll be what I thought 18 months ago, which is borderline fatal for for the party's togetherness. I think Janan makes a really compelling case, but I, I'm i not so confident that it will be as easy to put the Tory party back together again after the referendum for this reason, that for three or four months running up to the referendum, David Cameron has said he's going to be campaigning heart and soul to keep Britain in the EU. His job depends on it. He will be making an absolutely rock-solid case for Britain staying in the EU. He'll be making the case on the basis of economic security, national security, the future of the United Kingdom. And he will be also saying that the negotiated deal he's done in Brussels was the best deal he could have possibly got. Now, on all those points, he will be at odds with quite a large part of his party. And they will feel that their prime minister is hoodwinking the British electorate, presenting a false prospectus to the British people. They will feel betrayed. And I think what the problem is that once you have that sort of atmosphere going on for four months, the idea of disunity and distrust seeps into the body politic and then it's much harder beast to control and we you know we all remember the 1990s i agree with janan that the parallels aren't exact but you can see how quickly you know 
political party can start to sort of fall apart. So the question is, Janan thinks that we're going to remain in reluctantly with this sort of very straightforward, dry case. Um, can you see any situation, George, where Britain does vote for Brexit in the referendum? Uh, well, I, I shared Janan's view that in the end there will be a reluctant yes to stay in, similar on similar lines to one we saw in Scotland in in 2014. Um, because there'll be fear will be deployed very effectively, the economic case will be deployed, and in the end, the British people I think will vote for the status quo. But I don't think by any means that's a an assured result. You know, you don't have to go, to go down to the bookmakers; you can get three to one on uh, the UK leaving. That's you know, that's a thirty percent chance of the UK leaving the European Union. So you'd be foolish to say it can't happen, um, and you can easily see the case can be made. I, th- I think you have to look at the personnel who will be deployed in the campaign. And I think the fact that you've got, you know, a pretty solid lineup of mainstream politicians, including people like John Major and William Hague, on the campaign to stay in. And look at the lineup on the outside. You know, it's going to be Nigel Farage, maybe Ian Duncan Smith, maybe Chris Grayling, people like that. It's not as compelling a lineup. And I also wonder whether there'll be enough discipline in the Brexit camp as well. The, the question, Janana, I think the outcome is where are the big business figures that we've had a lot of businessmen speaking on behalf of the in campaign and we've had warnings Martin Wolf wrote in the FT this week outlining the case of why um, the whole referendum is an unnecessary distraction. I think there's certainly a view of that in the city at the moment. Do you think the, the out campaign, the Brexit campaign is going to be credible or is it going to be a bit like 1975 when it's people, the loony sort of on the fringe of politics? I think it'll be incredible, uh, not because the case itself is is in, entirely uh, laughable, but precisely for the reason that George elucidated, which is that the people fronting the campaign, whether they are politicians or business people, will just be seen as marginal or slightly eccentric. And I mean, you you press me on business people in particular. I I've always thought eurosceptic businessmen, or a lot of them, are a bit like voters in the country, and that they will toy and flirt with the idea of exit all the way until almost the the month of the referendum and a lot of them will will hang back or muddy their position or say well when I say leave what I mean is we remain in the internal market probably have to observe a lot of the regulations but we can negotiate our way out of this or that and as soon as you're into that position then the campaign I think does lack credibility the reason um, I mean the, the, the what you could say for the the out campaign is that they're aware of this personnel problem and that's why they're so anxious to see in the months to come, which members of the cabinet uh, end up peeling away and joining their side. The impression I get is that number 10 are not too nervous about Michael Gove or Sajid Javid, uh, who would, I think, add a lot of weight to the out campaign. They're a bit more nervous to see about what Theresa May and Boris Johnson do. Yeah, I mean, I think David Cameron thinks that Theresa May is also an inner, as he would put it, Um I agree with Janan that she's an important person in this in this campaign. But if you look at her track record as a minister, one of the most important things she did as Home Secretary was to opt back into a whole range of justice and home affairs, police, judicial cooperation measures in the EU. I don't think she's instinctively a Eurosceptic. Boris Johnson, in the end, will always do what suits Boris Johnson. But again, instinctively, Boris Johnson, despite what he writes in the Daily Telegraph, is instinctively a pro-European, or at least he believes that Britain's better off in the European Union. And I think in the end, a combination of self-interest, the prospect of getting a good job in the cabinet uh, and his own deep-seated instincts, we'll see that Boris on the inside as well. 
And now on to what has been another tumultuous week for the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn carried out his first shadow cabinet reshuffle, which began on Monday and went on through to about Thursday. And it appears to be rather badly planned out. And the only really big move was Emily Thornbury's promotion to the shadow defence brief. Murray Eagle shifted to culture. We also had some more junior ministers who resigned, including Pat McFadden, Stephen Dougherty, Kevin Jones, Jonathan Reynolds, to name a few. Now, Jim Picard, the main thing about this is these are all quite junior people in the shadow cabinet and your ordinary listener reader won't really know who they are what's the significance of the reshuffle this week i think the significance as far as the public is concerned is that labor looks even more dysfunctional than it looked last week it sort of has the resemblance of people struggling to organize a drinks party in a brewery on the titanic it's a perception that may not be completely unfair Whether or not that's the fault of Corbyn and his aides is open to debate. It could be because he has so many enemies seeking to undermine him. It could be that there's so much media taking pleasure or interest in this kind of inside debate. But either way, the impression is of an opposition party that really isn't acting like a government-in-waiting and not looking particularly electable right now. Because we came back from the Christmas break on Monday and we were all told it was pre-briefed out very much so this reshuffle was coming. And journalists, I'm not sure if that includes yourself, were camping outside Corbyn's office in the House of Parliament to see who was going out, what was being said, and nothing really began to come through till the early hours of Wednesday morning, Tuesday night. Um, Have you ever seen a reshuffle done like this before? Well, I was there on Monday at a quarter to two, on my own actually, in Norman Shaw, the building where he has his offices, and, and they came in one by one, including Jeremy, who, who stopped to apologise for disturbing me because I, I looked half asleep in the corridor. I didn't really hang around for three or four days because it didn't seem like a great use of, of my journalistic time paid for by the FT, especially when it became obvious how slow this process was going to be. It wasn't very smoothly carried out. They made a big mistake by making clear that they wanted to sack or demote Hillary Benn, and by not being able to do so, that looks like weakness. No doubt about that. You shouldn't brief stuff unless you can actually carry it out. But your point about the significant change being the appointment of Emily Thornbury, I think we shouldn't underestimate that he has come out of this with a different position on Trident for his shadow defence secretary and the big row that we're expecting later in the year when the government goes ahead with authorising the renewal of Trident. That debate has become different. There will still be a row but Corbyn's going to look less weak than he would have. So in that sense, I think he has emerged stronger despite the bad noise around this whole thing. Well, we've also got John McTurnan here. Now, you've been one of the most vocal critics of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership as Labour leader. First of all, what did you make of this reshuffle? And then can you just pick up on that point about the move of Emily Thornbury? Because this is Labour positioning itself now to no longer support the renewal of Trident. So a normal reshuffle is designed explicitly to demonstrate authority. And what we saw was, in normal political terms, a catastrophic lack of authority. You brief the papers, you're going to punish Hillary Benn, demote him, move him sideways, sack him, whatever. He refuses to move and you back down. In normal politics, that is a sign of strength on Hillary Benn's part and weakness on um, Jeremy Corbyn's part. And equally, the sacking of Pat McFadden for disloyalty by saying that uh, it wasn't the West that forced terrorists to kill people in Paris or Lebanon, it was actually the terrorists who were murderers themselves, moral agents. By doing that, the leader is saying effectively that he believes, uh, that Jeremy Corbyn believes, terrorists are infants, children, who are forced to kill by the West. 
Now, again, in normal political circumstances, that would be an utter disaster and a story for day after day after day. This isn't normal politics. Um, it's right to say this reshuffle was in the end about defence. This reshuffle was in the end about Trident. Labour's policy reviews always have two chairs, one from the National Executive, Ken Livingston, has been appointed, and one who's the relevant Shadow Cabinet member, now Emily Thornberry, both in favour of uh, unilateral disarmament and abandoning Trident. So in that sense, Corbyn has got what he wants. Does it make him stronger? I'm not sure. Because the Shadow Cabinet remain... Uh, massively opposed to unilateralism. The Shadow Cabinet have got a bigger majority in them in favour of renewing Trident than there was even for bombing ISIS in Syria. And there's a conflict coming with UNITE. Len McCluskey's union represent members who build uh, nuclear submarines and maintain them. So I think it's a conflict deferred. um, I was talking to UNITE about an hour before I came here and and I think their position is actually a little bit more nuanced and their position is that should hypothetically a Labour government be in power at a point where it's still possible to cancel Trident. Jeremy Corbyn is committed to spending that amount of money, tens of billions of pounds, on alternative defence industry projects, and therefore they're more on the fence. It's the GMB is definitely uh, would be very upset about this. Unison, on the other hand, the big public sector workers' union, are not fans of Trident. So it's a little bit more subtle. Uh, yes, it is, but Unite have policy that's set by their biennial policy conference, and that policy is currently... Uh, to support Trident. So you'd have to actually take a vote at Unite Conference to change the policy. It can't just be changed by the leadership. On the issue of Trident, Jim, could you just walk us through what the, the process of this would be? Because we've got the vote this summer, which is the sort of definitive point on whether we renew Trident or not. If Labour wants to change this process, how would that happen? Because if my sort of memory serves me right, it would have to be at their conference because it's conference mm-hmm. who decides what Labour Party policy is, is it not? So... Jeremy Corbyn sought to have a vote and a debate on Trident at Labour conference this autumn. They took soundings, they realised that it was going to be a bit of a bloodbath and therefore they delayed that vote. But in the meantime, what's happening is that the Corbynistas are tightening their grip on bureaucratic institutions such as the National Executive Committee, the National Policy Forum, all these kind of bureaucratic, tedious sounding bodies which... Um, may not have had much significance in the past. Their significance now is that they're going to be the device by which Corbyn sidesteps his MPs, circumvents the shadow cabinet, and eventually gets his way with Ken Livingston and Emily Thornberry overseeing the review of Trident. It, it looks like it's only going one way. And also he's going to do more polls of members to find out what these 250,000 supporters out in the countryside like. And yes, they tend to like what Jeremy Corbyn likes, and therefore he's going to lean much more on that. But this idea of a new politics where people could say whatever they wanted to, I mean, that's one of the casualties of this week, because clearly uh, he didn't like Michael Duggar or Pat McFadden or anyone else speaking their minds on a, a variety of subjects. Well, the media's role with the Labour Party is one I want to ask John about, because this is something that, again, you've been very critical of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership on, that first of all, that the way this was briefed out about Hillary Benn was extraordinary, and the way that the press were treated, I think, pretty badly for sort of spending three, four days following this, waiting, no kind of explanation of why this was taking so long. And we've also had the live resignation of a shadow minister on the Daily Politics, which has led to accusations the BBC is interfering in his bias. You know, what do you make of all this? Because the Corbynite attitude towards the media is absolutely extraordinary. The media handling, like all the other handling of this reshuffle, was utterly incompetent. And I think it shows you that the Corbyn team don't care. This is about the party. 
It's not about projections to the country. It's about control of the party. So they have achieved their objective, which is stronger control over the party. And to be honest, even I, as a working columnist, can't feel that much sorrow for the poor dears, uh, the journalists who are live blogging, sitting on the stairs. They're adults. They could choose to do other things rather than just wait for some crumbs from Corbyn's table. But I think the thing which comes across in this is the way in which the Corbynistas are morphing slowly into cybernats. The way they talk about the media uh, on social media is almost indistinguishable now from the way cybernats talk about the BBC. So you start off with calling anybody who opposes you a red Tory. That's what the, um, the nationalists used to do, still do. And then you start to suspect the BBC, and now we have this extraordinary thing, which is that the BBC, and Laura Kunzberg particularly, are being picked on by Labour tweeters as being responsible in some way for orchestrating Stephen Doughty's resignation because he did it on television. He was going to resign anyway. It was going to be a story anyway. For them to make it into a story about the BBC and a conspiracy makes it a longer story and exposes just a very silly side of them, which does more to make voters look at them and go, what on earth is going on? And I, I think further to that, the point about the SNP is that the cybernats were very aggressive and unpleasant, but they had a common purpose whereas they were attacking other parties, whereas the Corbynistas are attacking more mild-mannered or more right-wing, however you want to look at it, uh, members of the same party. So the appearance that gives to people who aren't in the Westminster village or obsessive Twitter tweeters or social media addicts is that it looks potentially, inverted commas, nasty. And just quite a key point here is that George Osborne has wondered for years why it is that even when Labour leaders were unpopular, the Labour brand has always stayed a very good brand And he wants basically the Labour brand to be tarnished by association with the more unpleasant elements of the Corbynistas. And that could be starting to happen. And very funny, before we finish, I've got one last quick question. So yes, no for each. Is Jeremy Corbyn more safe and secure in his position now? And will he make five years? John? Uh, Yes, he was always going to do five years. And Jim? He's safer in his position. Either Corbyn or someone closely allied to Corbyn will take Labour into 2020. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to George, Janan, Jin and John for joining us this week. We'll be back next week for the next instalment of FT Politics. But before then, you can follow all of our political coverage on FT.com. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign policy commentator. Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts, and you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesday. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com.
the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 